open to tales to terrify. Good evening, children of the night. I'm pausing us on a trip to the southeastern corner of the state of Ohio as we head towards our new home. I'll say we stop in, oh, Zanesville, because that's on our way, and that's where I was raised, born just one county over at Licking Memorial Hospital. This town has its own share of ghosts, most of the less famous kind, but doesn't every town. I remember when I was in the sixth grade in the middle of the night with a pal of mine slipping into what he described as an abandoned slaughterhouse. It was just off of State Street where the MLK Junior Heritage Bridge is. Looking back, it was a weird place, but probably not a slaughterhouse. Memories. We'll be heading a bit further south for the next week, but this week, being Thanksgiving, we'll speed things along and get to it. As of this recording, Goodreads hasn't finalized its votes for who won what, so by the time this airs you'll probably know, but I'll try to make a point of letting everyone who didn't check know how things panned out in our genre. I appreciate the awards that come from the big names, like, of course, our friends at the Horror Writers Association's own Bram Stoker Awards. However, I really do like the voice of the readership as well. During a few days off of work, due to what turned out to be a very nasty sinus infection, I took the time to read M.R. Carey's The Girl with All the Gifts, which I knew actually very little going into it. If you happen to read any of Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam books and you like zombies, then this is going to be a good read for you. Carey put a good amount of work into his zombies to make them stand out against the stereotypical ones, but at the end of the day, they're zombies. Well-crafted zombies, though. So, our fiction for the evening, just before our story, you'll hear a spot of good music from David Bradshaw. You may remember the District of Wonders gave Mr. Bradshaw's Kickstarter for his album, Songs of the Former Country, some support. And one of his stretch goals was to write a song specifically for Tales to Terrify. So, we'll be airing it just before Brian Evanson's story, Grator. The story weighs in at a smidge under 40 minutes and was originally included in Evanson's Windime. A little bit about the author. Brian Evanson is the author of a dozen books of fiction, most recently the story collection Windime, Coffee House Press 2012, and the novel Immobility Tour 2012, both of which were finalists for a Shirley Jackson Award. His novel, Last Days, won the American Library Association's Award for Best Horror Novel of 2009. His novel, The Open Curtain, Coffee House Press, was a finalist for an Edgar Award and an International Horror Guild Award. Other books include The Wavering Knife, which won the IHG Award for Best Story Collection, Dark Property, and Altman's Tongue. He has translated work by Christian Gailey, Jean Fremont, Clairo, Jacques Jouet, Eric Chiviard, Antoine Volodin, Manuela Dregar, David B., and others. He is a recipient of three O. Henry Prizes as well as an NEA Fellowship. His work has been translated into French, Italian, Spanish, Japanese, and Slovenian. 
He lives and works in Providence, Rhode Island, where he is Royce Professor of Teaching Excellence in Brown University's Literary Arts Department. And now, David Bradshaw plays us into our story with the song, Pearl. skies and make the weather fine Make your rags and tatters in a finery, my girl Everything you'll ever be is mine, mine, mine Yes, everything you'll ever be is mine I'll take you for my bride in a little country church, my dear like you safe inside and in a cab beneath the pines I'll never hear a word of thanks or thought to pass your lips, my girl Cause everything you'll ever be is mine, mine, mine Yes, everything you'll ever be is mine Summer's touch if I should so incline And if the chill should trouble you best To keep it to yourself, my girl Cause everything you'll ever be is mine, mine, mine Yes, everything you'll ever be is mine And when the hand of winter strikes that spring Return, my dear, don't waste your final breath upon a drafty haunted wine. Don't linger or torment for all your worth is what I gave my girl. Everything you'll ever be is mine, mine, mine. Yes, everything you'll ever be is mine.
At age 13, shortly after his father's death from tuberculosis and his mother's removal to the state facility for the insane, Bert was given to his grandmother. His mother, he knew, wouldn't have wanted this. She had always done her best to keep him away from his grandmother, who she described as not right, though without ever explaining what made her so. But his mother, straight-jacketed, was not given a choice, was perhaps not even told. Burnt's court-appointed temporary guardian decided this was the option that best suited the state. It will be, the guardian declared, the best for you as well. The following morning, before leaving for work, his ersatz guardian stationed Burnt near the curb to await his grandmother's arrival. When morning had become afternoon and she still hadn't arrived, Burnt decided to take matters into his own hands. He traveled the first few miles on foot, passing the cemetery in which his father was buried. His feet began to ache as he walked out along State Road 89, along the shoulder where the gravel was fine, almost powdery. Cars passed him, but none slowed. It took him two, perhaps three hours to reach downtown Springville, trudging up over the hill and down past the drive-in, past the grocery store, the town hall, and then he trudged back out the other side, watching the houses thin out and then be mostly replaced by fields. Houses appeared briefly again, and he crossed through the four sorry streets of Mapleton, then more fields, nothing but fields. He drank alkaline heavy water from a horse pump, his stomach twisting on itself. The road's asphalt sputtered out, became gravel. His feet throbbed, were heavily blistered, perhaps bleeding. Near dark, he stopped at a farmhouse and asked for directions. The old woman? The man who answered the door asked. What do you want with her? Best stay away. When Byrne admitted he was her grandson, the farmer stared thoughtfully at him. Still better to stay away from her, he finally claimed, though in the end, the man brought him inside and fed him and then slipped on a jacket and drove him the rest of the way. Bert leaned his head against the truck's side window, feeling at once the burnt air of the heater blowing against his face and the way the glass itself was cooled by the night air outside. In the headlights, he caught a glimpse of two small white crosses to the side of the road, almost hidden in the grass, and then they were gone. The gravel road became dirt and then became rutted, Along the edge of the road was a running plain wire line, two barbed top wires above it. Burnt followed the fence mentally, its regular rhythm, until suddenly it turned a right angle and veered away from the road. Another half mile, and they were turning off the dirt road and pushing along the barest remains of a path, leaves and branches brushing the sides of the truck. They came to a ramshackle gate and stopped. She'll be back in there somewhere, said the farmer. This is as far as I go. He reached over, patted Burnt's shoulder. When you need help, you know where to find me. He watched the broad front of the truck pull away, backing slowly up the path, its lights distancing, then reduced to a glow through the leaves, then vanishing altogether. He turned to the gate, tried to examine it in the moonlight, there was no latch. It was held in place by a twist of wire looped between the fence post and the gate itself. 
He unhooked the wire, somehow slicing open his finger in the process. Sucking on the wound, he wondered how dirty the wire was, whether he needed a tetanus shot. The land on the other side of the gate was uncultivated, nothing like a farm. There were no lights to suggest the location of a house, and the path was sufficiently untraveled to be almost invisible in the darkness. He tried to follow it anyway, pushing his way through the grass, and then, when he realized he'd misjudged in the darkness, backtracking, trying to find it again. The moon slid behind the cloud, and it became almost impossible to see. He did not know how long he'd been wandering when suddenly he was at the house, sensing it more than actually seeing it at first, and then, as the cloud shifted, catching a flash of the moon's reflection on one of the windows. He managed to fumble his way to a door and knocked on it. There was no answer. Hello, he called. He knocked again, still received no answer. He groped around until he found the knob and turned it, was surprised to find it unlocked. The door slid fluidly and silently open, and he stepped in. The inside of the house was as dark as the outside had been, perhaps darker. He groped his way in, searching for a light switch without finding anything but a bare wall. Trailing one hand along it, he moved deeper into the house. Hello, he called again. He took a few more steps and then stopped thinking he'd heard something. He waited a moment, listening, but the sound was not repeated. He had just started moving again when he felt something flick quickly along his leg and away. He stumbled, nearly fell, gave an involuntary cry. No need to be frightened, said a soft, strangely warbled voice. Grandmother, he said, where are you? The voice laughed. I'm not your grandmother. It said, I am Grator. Who? There was a scratching sound, and a match blazed a flame. In its light, Burnt saw standing behind a table a boy, roughly his height, but very pale. He wore no shirt, and his skin was tight to his bones, his muscles nearly as visibly articulated as an anatomy model's. Burnt watched the boy bring the match to a candle holding it there until the flame caught doubled itself, then letting the match fall, still smoldering, to the floor. Where's my grandmother? Bert asked. You more more? said Grator, and laughed. You want to see you more more? Before Bert could ask what a more more was, Grator was gone, leaving the entrance hall and sliding deeper into the house, vanishing into the darkness. Not knowing what else to do, Bert waited. There was something on the table, other than the candle, a little pile of something that at first he thought to be strange, irregular chunks of chalk, but realized, once he came closer, were teeth. Four or five of them almost certainly human. He was reaching out to touch them when he heard a strange clumping sound and turned to see, lurching out of the darkness, an old woman she was moving oddly, as if disoriented. She had an odd, musty odor to her, strong even from a distance. She stopped at the doorway, where she remained hunched over, staring down at the floor rather than looking at him. You're my slating, she said. Her voice was strange, 
an unnatural falsetto and seemingly too strong for her body. Excuse me, he said. My flesh and blood, she said, still staring at the floor. Her mouth curled into a smile. You've come to me. You were supposed to come and get me, said Bart. And yet here you are, she said. My slating, she said softly. Stop calling me that, said Bert. I don't know what it means. The old lady nodded slightly, stiffly, as if offended. There is a room for you, she said. You may stay here. You may help. On the farm? There is no farm, she said. There are only the caves. She pushed her way out of the doorway and came closer until she was standing across the table from him. She reached out and jerkily stroked his hand, her skin leathery and stiff. Grator will take you there, she said. You must trust Grator. Trust Grator in everything. Where is Grator? he asked. What caves? She tightened her fingers around his hand, and he was surprised to find her grip much stronger than he would have supposed. He winced. Come, she said. You may take the candle. There is room for you. I will take you there. When he awoke, the day was half gone. His room, he saw now in the light coming in through the curtains, was small, the floor of bare, unvarnished boards. His bed was a simple cot. A rickety chair and his open suitcase were the only other furnishings in the room. He got up, stretched. After getting dressed, he wandered out, limping a little, his feet still sore from the walk. Nobody greeted him. On the table in the entrance hall, someone had left a tin cup of water and a skewer of smoked meat. The meat itself had an almost perfumed taste to it. It was very tough and stringy. He was hungry enough to eat it anyway. The house itself, he saw by the light of day, was quite old and quite small. It consisted of an entrance hall, then a salon with two doors leading off of it, one to his room and the other to what was, presumably, his grandmother's room. In the back of the house, through the salon, was a small kitchen, its counters covered with a thick layer of undisturbed dust. He tried the other door in the salon, found it locked. He knocked, but received no answer. Grandmother, he called, and then, as an afterthought, more more? Where, he wondered, was Grator's room? Didn't Grator live here, too? He went outside. He saw the path he had broken through the tall grass the night before. There, up above the shale, were two dark openings, the entrances to a pair of caves. Back in the house, he tried the door to his grandmother's room again. It was still locked. Why does she keep it locked, Bernd wondered. Is she in there asleep, or is she gone? He limped outside again, tried to peer in his grandmother's window, but realized he had somehow walked around the house in the wrong direction and was now looking into his own window. There was his cot, his chair, his bloody socks, his small suitcase. He limped further around the house and found the window of his grandmother's room to be shuttered. Through the slits in the shutters, he could see narrow rectangles of floor, but little more. He pushed at the shutters a bit, but they were firmly latched from the inside. The rest of the day was like that. 
a slow wandering through the house and around it, trying to figure out what to do with himself. He sat on the couch in the salon, thinking the air thick with the smell of dust. Should he hike back down, talk to the farmer who had driven him here, try to get his advice on what to do? Should he beg someone to take him away from his grandmother? He was still turning over such thoughts, vaguely ill at ease, when late that afternoon he found his eyes closing. Before he knew it, he'd fallen asleep. Suddenly, Grator was standing above him, smiling. Look, he said, and held out his hand to show burnt three teeth, canine, bicuspid, molar, each broken off roughly above the root. Whose are they? Bert asked. Now they're mine, said Grator. But whose were they? Grator shrugged. That's all that's left, he said, and then slipped out of the room. He awoke in the fading light, in the slow onslaught of nightfall. Even after he woke up, after knowing he had been asleep, Bert found he could not completely convince himself that Grator's visit had been a dream. He got up and found the matches where they lay on the entranceway table, looked through the mostly empty cabinets until he found a new candle. By the time he got the candle lit, Grator was there again, standing silently near the opening to the salon, still shirtless, startling burnt when he turned. Don't you own a shirt? Where have you been? Bert asked. Grator just shrugged. Here and there, he said. Where's my grandmother? Your more You want to see your more And then Grator turned and left the doorway. Taking up the candle, Bernd hurried to the entrance of the salon, arrived just in time to see him slip through his grandmother's door. He went to the door, listened, heard nothing. He came closer, pressed his ear against the wood. Still nothing. And then suddenly the door swung open and his grandmother stumbled out, almost knocking him over. She looked even stranger than she had before, was crumpled somehow, her skin loose and saggy. A strange smell rolled off her like burnt hair. Ah, she said, in that same strange falsetto, still refusing to look up and meet his eye. Slating, you wanted me? Um, said Bert, still off balance. No, he said, not exactly. Well, I wanted to know where you were all day. His grandmother made a strangled sound that he decided must be a laugh. <laughs> For the day I sleep, she said. As do you. I command it. How are you to go to the caves at night if you do not sleep during the day? What? He said. Have you obeyed Grator? Have you done everything Grator says as I counseled you? And then... Without waiting for a response, she placed a hand on his shoulder and pushed him away from the door to her room. She slipped back inside, closed the door. What the hell? wondered Bert. Grandmother? he called and moved toward the door. He'd placed his hand on the doorknob, was about to turn it when it opened of its own accord, and there was Grator. He tried to see past him to see his grandmother, but Grator was already through the door and pulling it closed behind him. So you've seen your more more, said Grator, rubbing his hands along his chest and arms, as if dusting himself off. What did the two of you talk about? 
Do you share a room with her? said Bernd. Isn't that strange? Grator just shrugged. Enough chit-chat, he said. Now we go up to the caves. Grator gave him a flashlight and led him up the mountainside on a steep, dry climb to the caves. In the daylight, the two openings had looked to Bernd small and shallow, two simple clefts in the rock, but they were higher up than he'd imagined. At the top of a steep, grand slide of shale, and were bigger, too. Up close, the first was a large, sideways bowl, hollowed out as if by wind. Inside was a honeycomb of openings, each entrance just a little bigger than a man. All along the walls of the cleft were strange symbols, some painted in dark, reddish-brown pigment, some scratched into the rock. There were images, too, crude stick figures of men missing limbs or collapsed in a heap. A strange bulbous shape dominated one wall, beneath it a figure that seemed human but not human, strange rubbery appendages in the place of its limbs. What are they? asked Bernd. Would you like to explore? asked Grator, ignoring the question. Choose an entrance and we'll follow it in. Bernd looked at him for a long moment, shook his head. Grator shrugged. Next time, then. You've seen it at least. That's a start. His eyes kept being drawn to the bulbous shape and the humanoid figure. He had to make a conscious effort to free his gaze and look out of the cave. There, far away and below them, were the lights of Mapleton, the real world. His grandmother's house, much closer but unlit, he could not see or even guess where it was. Grator stood up. Come on, he said. There's still the other cave to see. They made their way along the face of the rock, walking on exposed shale that cracked and threatened to give way beneath their feet and send them tumbling down the slope and into the darkness. To bring himself to walk it, even in the dark, Brent had to close his eyes, run his hand along the rock wall. The second cave was less rounded than the first, like a mostly deflated ball, a sort of sideways, wavery slit in the rock, perhaps ten feet tall, twenty-five long. They clambered in. Against the far wall, beside the one entrance to a tunnel, was a figure. Bernd went toward it, shining his flashlight. It was a body. An old woman, slight of frame, wearing old and frayed clothes. It had been dead a long time. The skin has been eaten away. The eyes were gone. Who is it? Bernd asked. Who's what? asked Grotter. That? Don't worry about that. That's nothing. How can a body be nothing when it no longer holds a person? Grator said flatly. Then it's nothing. What's going on? asked Bernd, a little hysterical now. What did you do to her? Grator just smiled. Angry and confused, Bernd came at Grator, arms out in front of him, but Grator stepped quickly to one side, fading into the shadows. Bernd struck out, hitting only the rock wall, the sandstone grating against his knuckles. Grator fell deeper and deeper into the shadows, slipping toward the back of the cave, always only imperfectly caught in the beam of the flashlight. Remember your grandmother? said Grator. Remember what she said to you? You are to listen to me. Pay me heed. How do you know what she said? cried Bernd. You weren't there. And then Grator's shadow, 
layered by other shadows, waved over the opening of the tunnel at the back of the slit and was gone. Bernd called out to him, but he did not answer. He moved all around the slit, shined his light down the tunnel, but Grator had gone down the tunnel and was hidden now, somewhere back in the caves, was nowhere to be seen. At first he thought of just going, leaving, wandering down the mountain and disappearing. But as he shivered his way from one cleft to the other, and then picked his way down the path, he began to ask himself, where would I go? His father was dead. His mother insane. His court-appointed guardian didn't want him. Who else was there? Well, there was the farmer, the man who had given him a ride to his grandmother's, but how willing, really, was he to help? Did Bernd want to find out? In any case, he told himself, coming closer to the house, his flashlight was dying. There was nothing to be done tonight. He would wait. In the morning, if he wanted, he could leave. Later, back in his room, the moon came through the shutters to spread dim slats of light along his bed, the floor. Should he stay? Should he go? The dilemma was all around him, solid as architecture, like a structure he was forced to live in, or a cage that was locked around his head. He was, he semi-consciously realized, slowly talking himself out of leaving. Or at least something was, he thought with a momentary panic. Something wanted him to stay. And then the panic left him as well, and he was no longer certain what he had been thinking about, what had happened in the caves, or why he had been worried. He had uneasy dreams. His dreams took him backward along the path down the hill, through the farms to Mapleton and south. He walked for days, carrying a knife in his hand. He walked through desert and across blasted, blackened earth. He came to a border town, past a boy whom he transformed into a corpse with his knife. As this transformation took place, he broke all the teeth out from the boy's mouth with the knife's haft. He turned the blade of the knife, and the light caught on it and flashed across his eyes, and he saw himself waver in the blade, only it wasn't himself exactly, but who exactly it was he could not know. He awoke to find Grator staring at him, a shape in the darkness, a more tangible darkness. He wanted to be angry with him, but somehow couldn't be, couldn't remember why he should be angry. He felt slowed, drugged. You've been dreaming, said Grator. A nightmare. Why is it still dark? You slept through the daylight, said Grator. You're learning. Why won't you let me go, Bernd asks. He heard the hiss of a match, watched Grator light the candle. Go, asked Grator. And then, suddenly, he remembered. Did you kill the woman up in the caves? asked Bert. Would you believe me if I said I didn't? You didn't? Grotor touched Bert's lips with his finger. Hush, he said. You've had a nightmare. Go back to sleep. Why did you leave me alone in the caves? asked Bert. Grotor shrugged. Why are you thinking of leaving me? That's different, said Bert. Remember what your Mormor said, said Grator. You must listen to me. Let yourself go and obey me. How many days have I been here? He wondered a few days or weeks later, and was puzzled to realize that he could not sort it out. 
not even roughly, a week or two at least, but perhaps a great deal longer than that, perhaps even years. The dreams continued, filled with a host of people, none of whom he could place. With knives, he and Grator forced these people up the side of the mountain to the first of the caves. Why only the first cave, he wondered as he dreamt. They killed them there, drew circles around them in their own blood, inscribed their bodies with symbols whose meaning he did not know. Then they waited until something, a thing he could never see, a kind of wavering shape that seemed imbued with the darkness between the stars, slowly dragged them back down one of the tunnels and away. What happened to them after that, Grator didn't know for certain. Shortly after that, he always woke up. It was not the killing itself, nor watching the bodies be dragged deeper in, which made him startle awake, but the realization that there was no shock, that it seemed smooth and natural from beginning to end, as if he had experienced the same thing a dozen times before. Often he woke up to see Grator in the room beside him, sometimes even in the bed beside him, touching his lips, telling him, shh, that it was all just a dream. He did not know if it was worse to wake up like that or to wake up alone. But it could be worse still, several times. He had woken up not in his bed at all, but on the slope of the mountain in full darkness, his body bruised and sore, and he with no idea of where he had been. Sometimes whole nights went by without him seeing his grandmother. On the nights that he did see her, it was clear that there was something very wrong with her. Something not right. Some sort of degenerative illness that was slowly transforming her. She could hardly control her limbs now. Her skin was flabby and hanging in some places, cracked and splitting in others. She no longer allowed him to come close told him she did not want this to be how he remembered her. She's dying, Bernd realized. What will I do when she's dead? He simultaneously felt worried and relieved. Maybe when she was dead, he could work up the nerve to leave. And then she turned slightly and he got a flash of something, a rubberiness in her arms as if her bones had started to dissolve. It was so unnatural, he couldn't believe what he'd seen. He involuntarily took a few steps toward her. Do not approach, his grandmother shrieked, and just for a moment looked up and met his eyes, and then moved swiftly through the door to her room, slamming it behind her. Bernd had to lean against the wall to gather himself. What had he seen? Had he imagined it? No, he was certain he hadn't imagined it, he had seen the eyes not of an old woman, but of a young boy. Grator's eyes. Quietly, he made his way to his mormor's door. He kneeled, pressed his eye to the keyhole. The room was mostly dark inside, lit only by the glow of a solitary candle. But even in that dim light, it was impossible to be mistaken. There was Grator, stepping out of his grandmother's skin like it was a suit of clothing. And there was Grator, staring back at the door, staring right at the keyhole, a smile on his lips. He fled. He ran down the mountain, veering on and off the road, listening for signs of pursuit. He knew what he had seen. 
but he also knew that if he told anyone, he wouldn't be believed. What was he to do? Make up a story? Something they would believe? Something? Anything? He had to escape Grothor. He had to get away, as far away as he could. He saw headlights far ahead, coming toward him, and he ran toward them, waving his arms. The truck, when it saw him, slowed, stopped. My grandmother, he said when the driver rolled down the window, she fell and hit her head. She's dead. Only then did he realize it was the man who had first driven him to his grandmother's house. Dead? said the man. Are you sure she's dead? I'm sure, said Bert. Sometimes people look dead and they're not. She's dead, said Bert. Well, get in already, said the man. But once Bert had climbed into the truck, he was surprised to find the man driving forward rather than turning around. Where are you going? he asked. We have to make sure, said the man, just in case. You'd never forgive yourself if she was alive and died because I didn't check. And Bert, not knowing what else to do, burst into tears. The man reached over and patted his shoulder, but kept driving toward his grandmother's house. Once the tears dried up, he shrunk against the side of the door and stayed there, hugging himself. When they arrived, Bernd refused to get out of the car. All right, the man said. That's understandable. You saw your grandmother fall and maybe die. I can understand why you don't want to go back in the house. No, Bernd wanted to explain. It wasn't that, but something slowed his tongue and the man was too quickly gone. He thought about running toward the house, somehow coaxing the man back before it was too late, but was afraid to leave the truck. He waited, feeling the darkness around him. And then suddenly he was no longer alone in the truck. He knew that there was someone else there beside him, despite the fact that the door hadn't opened. He couldn't bear to turn his head and see who it was. Nice of you to oblige me by bringing a friend, said a voice that he knew to belong to Grator. Bernd tried to open his mouth, found his tongue to cleave to his palate. He made a strangled sound. Grator put his arm around his shoulder. He leaned closer until his eyes, shining in the darkness, were inches from Bert's own. He could feel Grator's warm breath against his face. Who do you listen to? asked Grator in a way that made it clear the question was rhetorical. Who is your god? Who's in charge of you now? Before the man was conscious again, Grator and Bernd gagged him, bound his wrists tightly behind his back, running a lead off the rope as well. Then they went into the kitchen and got a knife, jabbing the man's arms with it until he woke up. Bernd watched it all as it happened, unable to do anything but what Grator wanted. He struggled, tried to break free, but couldn't. The man struggled, too, and couldn't break free either. They climbed the side of the mountain, Following the path toward the caves, the beam of the flashlight was sharp, all things rendered crisp and in painful, explicit detail. Bert watched in front of him, the man struggling to climb, his bound wrists flexing against the small of his back. Bert climbed behind him, the ground beneath his feet feeling distant at a remove. Just behind him came Grator. They came to the top and entered the first cleft, 
who burnt knew this was not where they would remain. They stopped, and the man stood, panting, his gag growing damp. The rope, Burnt could see, was chafing the skin away from the man's wrists. He watched Grator lean against him, touching a finger to his gag. "'Hush,' said Grator. The man tried to pull his head away. "'He's going to kill him,' thought Burnt, yet he could make no effort to stop him. They made their way out of the cleft and along the face, over the bare, cracking rock. Burnt was first, looking back over his shoulder as he went, shining the light down at their feet. Grator came behind, holding the man by an elbow to keep him from tumbling down the mountainside. Burnt clambered up into the second cleft. Then Grator pushed the man up and came in himself. He jabbed the knife into the man's stomach, making him grunt. Come on, he said gesturing first at the man, then it burnt. Down the tunnel, he said, and held out his hand to take the flashlight. Burnt went first, moving to the back of the slit. There must be a way out, he was thinking, even though he couldn't stop walking. The man would die. There was no helping that, nothing he could do. He had grown willing to sacrifice him if he himself could survive. Perhaps he could figure a way out. All he needed was some time. But then he reached the back of the slit and stepped into the tunnel beyond. Behind him, Grator's flashlight went dead, and all around him the darkness grew palpable, quickly more than he could stand. And then the flashlight came on again, and he saw he had turned himself around in the tunnel somehow and was looking backward into the other man's pale and terrified face, at the mouth struggling against the gag. Keep going, said Grator, so he did. The tunnel grew narrow, its floor uneven. They started down a long incline, and Burnt found the temperature rising around him, the air thick and hard to breathe. They went farther down, and Burnt's feet were now in tepid water, and soon the water was up to his knees. The passage began to tilt to one side, so he had to lean and push off the rock below him, the other wall slanting to become the roof. Behind him, the man slipped. Though the passage was too narrow for Burnt to quite turn around, he could look back under one arm to see him fallen on his face in the water and with his hands tied behind his back, unable to get up. And then Grator yanked the man up by the arms, and he arose with water coursing down his face and blood from where he'd struck his forehead too, but the gag still in place. Burnt could hear him coughing inside the gag as if he were choking to death water coming in gouts out his nose. Grator, steadying the man and helping him to angle his stance, flashed the light into Burnt's eyes and said, Keep going! I won't, thought Burnt, but kept on. The angle became severe, the passage tight enough that he had to lie on the slant floor, waist deep in water, an inch along on his back. The passage tightened further, the ceiling coming low enough to touch his chest. He had to let out his breath to move forward. He could no longer turn his head about, so he had to leave it to one side, looking backward at the man's damp and bloodied face, one hand feeling out blindly in front of him, Grator's flash beam behind him and darting all about. He could not see in front of him and could not tell where he was creeping, inch by inch, and then wasn't creeping at all. He saw the man behind him was no longer moving forward. His chest... What's wrong? Bird asked. 
He's stuck, said Grator. Stuck? You must be stuck too, said Grator. And Bernt suddenly knew that he was. He could feel the rock against his chest, and his breath was with him only in short bursts, and he could neither move forward nor back. For an instant, Grator flicked the flashlight off, and for Bernt there was nothing, not a thing, only an immense darkness, an asphyxiating nothingness. Flashlight came on again, and he could see in the light the blood beating in the man's neck. This is enough, said Bernt. Help me get free. Let's go back. Grator smiled. Back, he said, using Mormor's falsetto. Bernt closed his eyes and tried to think himself elsewhere. But when he opened him, the man was still there, and Grator too, the latter pushing a knife along the upper edge of the wall, scraping the edge of it along the ceiling, bringing the other through the man's neck. The man flinched and scraped the side of his head against the rock just above him, the knife cutting deeper. Grator drew the knife back, the blood pulsing in little jets around it, and then spreading in a sheet over the man's shoulders and down his chest. Burnt saw the man's throat tighten as the man tried under the gag to swallow. Then the eyes began to glaze, what he could see of them in the dim light. They turned opaque, and Burnt knew the man was dead. He could see through the cleft in the man's neck a section of Grator's face, a single visible eye, pale and hard. Grator was reaching out with one hand, fingering the man's neck, his sodden shirt. He began smearing the rock above with the man's blood, writing vague symbols, muttering as he did so. What are you doing? asked Bert. Now it will come for him, but take you too. All I need is your skin. Your mormor is worn out. Who better to replace her than her slating? Then his hand was withdrawn, and Bert could hear Grator's body scraping its way back down the tunnel and away, the light of the flash beam ever more distant. He called out, but had no response. The other man's face in the dying light was a solid mass, another rock, inscrutable. Don't leave me, Bernd called to Grator, but there was no response. He closed his eyes. When he opened them, it had fallen dark all around him, darker than he could bear. And then, somehow, it grew darker still. He waited, mind slowly collapsing for the darkness to take him. And that was Grator by Brian Evanson, as read to us by Stephen Howell. Mr. Howell is one of our most prolific narrators and has done some longer pieces for us as well. Stephen Thomas Howell is a retired Army officer working towards an MFA in creative writing at the University of Tampa. He writes short stories and is working on his first novel. He lives in Valrico, Florida with his wife, two sons, and one hyperactive dog. And that will be our show for the week, Children of the Night. Join us again next for one more round of Tales to Terrify.